Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1411 entitled Gin's a Tonic. <laughs> Our podcast title is Howdy Podner. Nice. <laughs> I am Rob Jan. And Megan McKeon. And here we are on Zero G. And we're very excited because we've actually been off to the cinema. Yes, heaps <laughs> of good stuff coming out. And we thought we should try and get along and cover some of the the things that are rolling out into cinemas. And I'm pretty happy that we did. I think we've got two very interesting films coming up to chat about today. Mm. Did you ever think that you would be... <sighs> Very, very non-blasé about being in a cinema again. I mean, it was like, you know, we were years and years and years reviewing films and seeing them and off to the picture house and it was just so commonplace. Mm-mm-mm. Even so, I still used to get a, a thrill every time the movie came up in, in the pictures. Just a little bit of a frisson. A- absolutely. I love going to the cinema, seeing the trailers, the whole production of it as well, like the snacks, getting in your seat. I just think it's a lovely experience and I've been more than happy to start getting back to the cinema in the last couple of months. Yeah, all it took was to take it away from us for three years. I know, <laughs> and it's like you got to appreciate all the wonderful independent cinemas in Melbourne as well and I think just recognising, you know, we have a pretty nice industry and a pretty nice uh situation in Melbourne. So it's good to get along and support films and cinemas. Hmm. And that's actually kind of a nice segue into just dropping a mention about Radiothon because as a subscriber, one of your benefits is discounts at a range of cinemas across Melbourne. And also one of the major prizes that you could be in the running for is a gold pass to Cinema Nova, which entitles you to a double pass to films for 12 months, which is pretty epic. Thank you so much to everyone who has donated, subscribed, renewed during the Radiothon. It is still going, so you can be eligible for some of those wonderful prizes if you subscribe and settle up before the 5th of October. So thank you so much to everyone, and please, if you've been meaning to and haven't had a chance, you can head along to rrr.org.au forward slash subscribe or forward slash donate. Triple R is, of course, an independent nonprofit station, and we do rely on things like listener subscriptions and donations to keep us going and keep this wonderful community alive. So just wanted to shout that out before we crack on with things. All right. So the first film today, take it away, Megan. Yes, our first film, which is 3,000 Years of Longing. We did briefly drop this and mention because it was one of the Melbourne International Film Festival films that fell within our remit, and so we gave you a little heads up on that around that time. But we'll go over the uh, the nuts and bolts once again uh, of the story because story and narrative plays a pretty big part in this film. So you might know it as the Tilda Swinton Idris Elba genie film. You might know it as George Miller's next big film. So this is indeed the latest film by Australian filmmaker George Miller. 
So we do know and love his previous work. Uh, He's responsible for the Mad Max films. He also worked on the Babe films, directed and produced and wrote, and also Happy Feet. So those are just some of the examples of the Miller films that you're probably familiar with. Uh, And he actually did co-write the screenplay with Augusta Gore. Now, it looks like it was Gore's first screenplay, uh, and the script for this film is based on a 1994 short story. So the short story was written by British author A.S. Byatt, and the short story was from a collection called The Gin in the Nightingale's Eye and was the titular story for that. So Byatt was a pretty prolific author, and she's a quite well-respected writer uh, who's been publishing works since the 60s, and I think myth and fables have played quite a strong theme in her work, and this collection's no different there. So it's a collection of five stories that are kind of inspired by myth and folk tales and they're used to examine more contemporary elements or contemporary issues. So this particular story, The Gin in the Nightingale's Eye, was originally published in the Paris Review and then has found its way here onto the screen. So I think probably the best way to describe this is it's a bit of a cerebral fantasy drama with uh, a strong dash of the speculative. So we're really going on a bit of a lush adventure. And I actually was a bit unsure what I was getting into because, um, yeah, I just wasn't really sure. And it did turn out to be a little bit different to what I'd expected. So perhaps before we jump into the plot and characters should we take a bit of a track and just get get us in the mood for a bit of a fantastical fable so we are going to listen to a track called gin theme and this one's by tom holkenborg and uh, he's also done the scores for godzilla vs kong justice league sonic the hedgehog the dark tower alita battle angel so he's no stranger to this kind of blockbuster big sci-fi fantasy type work so we're going to listen to a little bit of the score from three thousand years of longing this is Jin theme this is china mievel author of the city and the city and you're listening to zero g on three triple r fm melbourne That was Gin Theme, and that is from 3,000 Years of Longing, the first film that we're going to talk about today in our cinema double feature on Zero G. So that music was by Tom Holkenborg. So let's set the scene, uh, and I think that did it quite nicely. So 3,000 Years of Longing follows Dr. Alethea Binney, played by Tilda Swinton. Uh, So Tilda Swinton, uh, we've known her from many different roles in the past. She was in Snowpiercer, the new Suspiria, Only Lovers Left Alive, a lot of Wes Anderson, um, bit of Coen Brothers, uh, and, of course, her role in Doctor Strange. So uh, she plays Dr. Binney. And uh, Dr. Binney is a solitary yet pragmatic narratologist. Now, I didn't know this was a thing and it sounds pretty interesting. (laughs) Basically, it's someone who studies stories and narrative and folk tales and myth and legend. And I thought that element was pretty interesting. Uh, So she's visiting Istanbul for a conference. And so one day she's browsing in a market uh, shop and she finds a little glass bottle buried in a pile of knickknacks. And uh, take purchases it. It's a gift from a colleague, and takes it back to her nice hotel. And she's cleaning it up when, surprise, surprise, as she's kind of trying to uh, shine it up a bit, enter Idris Elba as the Jinn, which is sort of another 
uh, name for it, spiritually in the essence of a genie. And um, he's there to grant Alethea's heart's desire in the form of three wishes. So Idris Elba, of course, we know him as Heimdall from the MCU. He was also in Pacific Rim, The Suicide Squad, the latest one, Dark Tower, Star Trek Beyond, Prometheus. So quite a familiar face. And here he's playing the djinn. Uh, We're not sure yet whether he's a, a trickster or not. But um, a lot of the story will, or a lot of the film will hang on the interaction between these two as he tries to convince her to make her three wishes. So that's kind of the rough plot of it. And it's quite, uh, it's it was quite different to what I had thought it would be. So it's quite an intimate little story in that there's a large chunk of it that's just Tilda and Idris in the, ho- in the hotel room kind of chatting and talking through. But then we've got this other sprawling element as we learn about the Jin's fantastical past during a series of different ages in different locations. So there's three different tales there. Roughly, it's um, we see a bit from biblical times as we learn a bit about the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon. Then we follow a little chapter about a royal family of the Ottoman Empire. And then uh, we also learn a bit about a 19th century genius who's locked away in a tower, a bit like a bird in a cage. So those are kind of some of the rough um other kind of more sprawling elements that we see. So I hadn't really known what to go, what to expect going into this. And I certainly didn't think that it would be kind of that spectacular in a way. So what's your, what was your takeaway, Rob? I think I've, I've used up enough of the air. What were, what were you expecting and what do you, how did you feel about the film? Well, we've only got so much air in the bottle, haven't we? Exactly. <laughs> I thought it was ingenious actually. <laughs> I hadn't expected what they did either, but mm-hmm. it actually grows out of the setup in this. Yeah. That they spend more time talking about the jinn's periods of incarceration mm. than they do about Tilda Swinton's character. Yes, yeah. And I thought that was spot on for this one because as as her character points out, Free wishes stories are always cautionary tales. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you don't really have a story. So they've actually gone for something different here. Obviously, mm. it's spinning off of the author's original short story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the things I did notice straight away, I think Tilda Swindon has got a bit of a Yorkshire accent running in this one. Yes. And the, the original author of the short story was from Yorkshire. Ah, I wonder if that's, yeah, I mean, I thought, I, can't, I mean, I can't tell, but I thought she did an all right job of the accent and that's definitely, you get a sense, you do get enough of a sense of her character, I think, mm. but um, you're right that it, it did firmly more centre on the history of the djinn rather than, you know, his personal history rather than a pati- it particularly being about their relationship or the two of, of them together. So some of the themes are very much around, as you mentioned, wishes as a cautionary tale, themes of love and free will, and also digging into some of those narrative stories, like I mentioned, as you know, we're following sultans and princes and all of that kind of family drama as as part of the Jin's story that he's sharing. I I do wish, given that she's a narratologist, and I think maybe I just missed this, 
I would have liked to see a little bit more stress on maybe exploring narrative elements or flipping them or do you know what I mean like doing something kind of interesting there whereas it kind of I think that was maybe a missed opportunity I'm not sure well I feel because it feels very sort of semi-autobiographical for the short story author yeah I would have liked to have seen more of what essentially are kind of the bookends Mm. of the story a little bit like Titanic isn't it really when you think about it yeah true you've got got all the uh the 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 parts of the iceberg that are underwater in, and set in, uh, in in previous history, but we've also got these sort of contemporary kind of bookends on it mm, as well, yes. which are really important. They're actually uh, way more important than the Titanic ones were. They're, they're more integral to the plot. Yes, but true. Very I true. like those. Uh, I actually felt because we got to see so much of um, historical sort of Istanbul and so mm-hmm, on, mm-hmm. wherever they were setting all of the pieces there, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but I would have liked to have seen more of the Istanbul Grand Bazaar. Yeah, you know, I mean, you yeah. tell me, you tell me, sixty-two streets and four thousand shops, and I want to go there. I want I to know. see it all. I've been hunting around for documentaries ever since <laughs> I saw the film. <laughs> you know, so I thought that was something they could have explored maybe a bit more. On the other hand, making it literally a bottle show. Mm in that hotel room with the excursions into the past works well too. So, yep. you know, these are just sort of like oh, if I had my druthers, you know, I'd like to see yeah, yeah, this and yeah. that. But as it was, it was fine. Uh, the special effects I thought were particularly amusing. Yes, yep. I think it's pretty sumptuous and I think, you know, there's certain you've got the juxtaposition of that very clean, fancy hotel room and they're chatting in the robes and things and then, you know, we kind of cut to these um, big uh, kind of luscious settings and through different Turkish baths and all kinds of different things and and it's a it's a very nice contrast I thought and I think I did I thought that too I was like oh wow this is pretty much just them in one set how cheap would that be but then you think about all of the other things he's doing in the film and the scope of those flashbacks that I'm like oh no that's where the money's going <laughs> they're probably not saving that much on having the bottle element in that hotel room it's, after it's all. perfectly cast isn't it I mean mm. you know I can you keep saying that about Tilda Swinton, especially, this is the she was born to play a vampire. <laughs> she was born to play an alien samurai zombie hunter. She, you know, <laughs> keeps saying that sort of thing, but it's true, yeah. And she's just note perfect once again. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Idris is actually the the right actor to play opposite her too. Yeah. I felt it was perfect. And there's a height difference between the two that. Yeah. He's got this much more imposing. And I like that he did play the gin very vulnerable at times and you feel quite connected, but then other times he is a bit of an imposing figure. And so I thought it was a really nice um, nuance there. What I will say, I totally agree about the casting. And I think there's the contrast there for a reason between those two actors and how they interact. I did think those excursions into the past, uh, did mean I struggled a little bit to connect with with their relation or how they were interacting necessarily or I'm not sure what I wanted from it, but I think those excursions into the past with all these other kind of side interesting characters who really are characters in a story, I felt maybe that was at the expense of a little more emotional engagement for that core it what can the be, film suggesting? Yeah. You can read that way because it's a uh, an anthology, really, when you think about mm. it. 
Absolutely. But the stories are connected because they're all, the, the gin is present at each one of those mm-hmm, mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. segments. So yeah, that kind of yeah. makes sense. No, I, I do agree there. I did feel disconnected to some of them, mm. um, you know, but we're not, we're not in our twenties or we don't have to say that we have to identify with the characters, you know. I didn't identify with that character. No, um, that's true. I guess I guess I wanted to connect a little more with the Jin and Alethea, though, mm. and I think that's where it started to really get into that towards the maybe last third of the film. I, I that really started to grab me, and I think there was some nice subtle moments there, and I was like, oh, I wish I kind of had a bit more of that, but I can see. I can see why it was it was kind of portioned that way and paced that way as well. But you're right. I think in terms of stories and characters, those big historical bits, totally fine to not. I mean, mm. they were meant to be quite um, over the top, I guess. In, in terms of the uh, the segments themselves, just to mm. look at those one off, I, I thought the Queen of Sheba one didn't quite work as well for me. It didn't land as well as I, I thought it might have. Mm. So that was really an interesting setting. Mm, mm, um, mm. You know, but the the one I thought was also equally powerful as the last two. So, okay, the first one I didn't quite um, manage to grasp, but the second one with the the Seragulo and the... The Ottoman Empire, yeah. The yep, Ottoman yep. Empire with the assortment of plus-sized concubines which mm. I thought was a, a really bold thing to do mm. and it, it I thought that was just you know respect for doing the scenes the way they they did that I thought that worked well uh, and also there's a there's a kind of a tragic element there because of the two brothers who are at odds in that one yeah yeah and, that, and a that, bit of a classic tale in a way of course and maybe that's where they are playing into the whole narrative trope element is yeah, the two different brothers and the betra- family betrayal and things like that. We really start to see those kinds of themes come out strongly in that middle portion. And I thought that Miller did a, a good job of turning this away from what I suspect, but I can't confirm, uh, mm. is a, a strong strain of Orientalism mm, Yeah, in yeah. the original story. Mm. You know, I mean, and now is the 21st century and we're... Mm. A little bit more cosmopolitan, I think, than in the the start of the twentieth century, and so I felt like they managed to to balance that quite well in the yeah. story. Yeah. And the, the story that appealed most to me, the third one, yes, uh, agreed. Where you had the the uh, the woman who was a an incredibly talented and skilled maker. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, and she was creating all sorts of amazing inventions and mathematical theorems and yeah complicated yeah and and such a a free spirit imprisoned that was definitely my favorite segment as well i think they got stronger as they went um Mm. and i thought you might like that one too and i think yeah that was really around thirst for knowledge and and the double-edged sword that it can be and and things like that i i really liked that as well i think Oh, did we mention Megan Gales in this too? Yes. I was like, oh, there's a couple of Aussie actors that pop up um, and I'm like, oh, nice, because it was filmed largely here yeah. and of obviously Miller being Australian uh, is a bit of uh, Aussie familiar face, <laughs> Megan Gale included. Yeah. I think sometimes Miller gets a little male gazy. Uh, I think there's a bit of male gaze happening with him sometimes and I think, you know, you can see that in Mad Max a bit, the Fury Road and, I mean, 
it's it's interesting. I think sometimes like I pull that out of his films, but then he's also doing some other very interesting things uh, as well. So I did just want to call that out that I definitely think there's a disproportionate amount of maybe um, female bodies and fetishizing. But I would also go ahead to say that much of it is in context. Yeah, that's of the, the stories. So whereas the old <laughs> the old saw goes, it's all done in the best possible taste. But- <laughs> Yeah, look, so. it, it is in context. I, I understand why they did it. And to res, to resile from that would have been a, a dodge in, it, in itself, wouldn't it? It's It would be odd to, yeah, I, I think, I, I think, so I've been thinking a little bit about it and I was like, okay, um, but I still think worth a mention. Mm, it's, yeah, it's gloriously filmed too. Yeah. Uh, um, the uh, If I had to say the dominant tone in the colour palette, it would be bronze. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I love the whimsy in it too, um, the musical instruments that have mm. that are alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was pretty cool. I think there's some interesting ideas that came to the screen really nicely. Like overall, it's pretty ambitious. I think it's it's an odd film in a way and I think it – I wouldn't know who this is for necessarily and I wouldn't know who to recommend this to necessarily. I will say personally I think – I can recognise that I think it's a good film, but I can't say it particularly grabbed me or is going to stick in my mind necessarily, and I probably wouldn't go out of my way to recommend it because it kind of sits in a bit of an interesting space where it's not exactly a fantasy romance, which is what some of the marketing will lead you to believe. It's not a fantasy epic either. There's elements of, you know, large in scope stories, but I wouldn't say it's like a, you know, Rings of Power-esque huge thing. Uh, what's the film uh, Somewhere in Time? Yeah, sure, yeah. exactly. And and it's also not like a romantic comedy that just has like magical elements waved over. It's kind of none of that and all a bit of all of that at the same time. So it's... It's, I can see how it's an oddly pitched film and so I'd be intrigued to see if it can find the audience that I think, because I think it is a deserved film to see. I think there'd be many people who would enjoy this. I'm not sure how I, I'm still not sure how I felt about it, but uh, I don't regret seeing it. I guess that's something. For me it's strange because uh, my partner, Gail, she's been belly dancing for a very long time. Yes, and, I remember you, know, you said. A big passion for the Middle East in general. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've been mm-hmm. through all of these things and I sort of have accompanied her along the way on the yeah. journey. So I'm actually very interested in the, the whole gin thing and mm. you know, having seen enough, a few Iraqi films and mm-hmm. uh, Iranian films and, uh, you know, and, and obviously gone through that whole appalling period in Hollywood where you're having uh, the 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 Arabian movies that were musicals you know, yes. the whole thing yes yeah. this is this is so far advanced from those mm. yes true although it doesn't have as much music <laughs> <laughs> um, but but it's fun anyway I I found myself thinking yeah I really am enjoying where this is going the fact that mm. it's different as a fantasy story it is different it is yes and the thing I appreciated most, probably overall, um, the procedural. Now, what we're talking about here is the immortal procedural. Yes. Because mm-hmm. the gin is essentially an immortal, like a vampire or yep. that sort of thing. And there are things that you need to be able to spell out in that and to explore because it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if 
you, we watched that uh, movie recently on streaming about the um, the uh, immortal band of soldiers. Remember that one? Uh, with uh, and they ended up in the twenty twenty first century, the long way, having lived for a time. And oh, the old guard. Yeah, people were trying to find out why they were immortal. That sort of thing. That's There's right. Procedural yep. in that. Remember that one? Yes, that uh, was a good one, Charlize. And I thought that, yeah, she leads to the wrong. And I thought this one was also good in that. Uh, And at one stage, um, Tilda asks Idris, what does one do in a bottle for 2,500 years Mm. apart from sleep? Yeah. And then Idris says, gin do not sleep. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and there's stuff in there that I thought, yeah, this is very resonant and and I like the way they're handling it. Yeah, yeah. So it actually was. I actually was the audience for this, and I can. Yeah. I can recommend it there to you Dale. Go. Great. Yeah. Nice. So, but I still agree with you on that. <laughs> Who's the audience for this? Maybe mm. this is. This is the a, a, a Miller film I never expected to see. It. I do think I, I'm very pleased to see something this interesting coming out of you know an established director like Miller. I wouldn't have expected something like this. Is kind of um. Like, oh, I can't remember. I'm failing to think of the director, but like Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus-y kind of Terence Malicky kind of weirdness in a way. Even Wes Anderson could have done this one when you think a about little, it. A yeah, little, yeah. I think yeah. I think it's less, it's it's actually not as whimsical as it appears on the surface and I think that's what's interesting too and I think that's the Miller part coming out, you know. Mm. So... Well, it's 3,000 years of long. It doesn't quite take that long to get through it. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I, I just liked it. It was a, a film that I wanted to see. I saw it in the cinema and it was exactly the best place for it, even if I was one of only about five people in yes. session. Our session was oh, our session was fairly busy, but let's just say the demographic, we were probably not the – we were the youngest people there. <laughs> well, we were watching it in a, a V Premium, you know, pretty big – Pretty big cinema, and it was just delightful to go in there and see. Yeah, no, and for sure. Yeah, so I do recommend it as 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 eclectic and and as eccentric. No, perhaps not as eccentric as you might think. Mm, yes, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, and it it's it's got lighthearted elements, but I would say you know there's obviously as we mentioned before, like nudity and some other themes and things. So this isn't like a, a fun film that you just take the family to. It's more mature than that. So, um, yes, 3,000 Years of Longing in cinemas now. And uh, I think it's generally a yeah from us. Hmm. Yes, I I think you should uh, uncork the bottle in this one. Mm. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I wish it well. (laughs) Oops, that's one. (laughs) I know. Oh, gosh. It makes you, you do start to think, what would I wish for? Should we take a little track to lead into the next film that we're going to talk about? Yes. I've got a nice French track that we could lead in with. Yeah, let's go with the Jodie Foster track. Okay, great. (laughs) A celebrity singer. (laughs) Indeed. So we're going to hear a track from the movie Nope, Jordan Peele's latest, which we're going to talk about next. This is La Vie (laughs) Se Souchette. Yes. Suchette. Uh, so let's, uh, and it's Jodie Foster. So let's have a listen to that. This is Jack Dan, author of Bad Medicine for Zero G, the science fiction, fantasy, and historical radio show on 3 Triple R FM.
Ah, uh, yes, that was la vie c'est chouette, and a chouette is an owl, <laughs> but I think it also means cool. <laughs> oh, in this case, it's just life is great. Ah, you know? uh, life is cool. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. Uh, <laughs> and- that. Was Jodie Foster singing? Mm. And she was 15 years old when she sung that because, of course, she was a child star, mm-hmm. a child actress, very big in France back then in 1977 in a movie directed by Eric Lehung, and it was called uh, Moi Fleur Bleu, or as <laughs> Gail was coaching me on that, and it's just it's, it's like the, uh, the Bella Lugosi, Bleu, Bleu, Bleu. <laughs> Moi fleur bleu. <laughs> it's so difficult when a buffoon like me tries to do French movie titles. <laughs> it's the thought that counts, you know. We're putting the effort in. No one's going to mistake us for even close to native French. but um, No, more like some of those uh, people from Australian farms who ended up in France in World War One and came back calling... The town's all sorts of outrageous things. <laughs> <laughs> okay, from, from the 1970s. Now, that is a needle drop mm-hmm. in uh, Jordan Peele's a new movie. Nope. Gee, he loves those titles, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am yeah. so keen to hear about this because I've just seen the trailer. I've obviously loved Peele's other work, so I'm very keen to hear your thoughts, Rob, and a little bit more about his latest venture. So I saw this as a double feature, basically, with 3,000 Years of Longing. And, in fact, I went back into the very same cinema, into the same seat. Oh, wow. (laughs) It wasn't even, it hadn't even got cold yet. (laughs) Now, I will let you know about a horror story from 1902. So we're echoing our 3,000 Years of Longing here. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, It's in a collection of short stories called The Lady of the Barge. Mm-hmm. And it's by author W. W. Jacobs, mm-hmm. and it's called The Monkey's Paw. Mm-hmm. Now, in that story, there are free wishes that go to the owner of The Monkey's Paw. Oh. And, of course, there is a huge price to pay in that. Now, I give you that diversion because The Monkey's Paw, Monkey's Paw is the name of Jordan Peele's production company. Ah. How is that for a segue from one... <laughs> Fantasy <laughs> film to a Western mm-hmm. or neo neo Western horror movie. Love it. Now there is another genre involved, but I choose not to tell you that. You may very well have figured that out from the trailer. Okay. You may very well figure out that out from the poster. But I did none of those things, and mm-hmm. I appreciated for myself the fact that I went in not knowing about the other genre in this at all. Okay. Okay. So. Uh, he gave us the title for this one in 2020, and they have a lot of fun with the title, Nope. <laughs> it is mentioned very many times in the film. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. In one occasion, in the way that we generally tend to use Nope now, you know when you you see something going south and you could get involved in that and you just go, Nope. <laughs> yeah, you nope out of there. Okay, yeah, yes. It is, it is perfectly deployed there. Now, we know Jordan Peele, of course, from his other films, Us and Get Out. But he also had that that long apprenticeship as a comedian. 
before that. And that does actually show up in most of his films in one way or another. He was the host and producer of The Twilight Zone from 2019 to 2020, that um, revisit revival. Uh, we've seen him in things like uh, Captain Underpants, the first epic movie, voice acting in some of these, of course. Um, and he also produced Spike Lee's Black Klansman as well. Oh, that was such a good movie. Yeah. Uh, he's a, a very strong filmmaker, I, I believe. He's He's been inspired by things like Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living Dead, Candyman, uh, The People Under the Stairs, Silence of the Lambs, you know. Yeah. Possibly there's a Jodie Foster mm-hmm. reference mm-hmm. there from that track that we just played. And, you know, and he very much likes Alfred Hitchcock, Kubrick, mm-hmm. Uh, Shyamalan and Spielberg. And you can see all of that in, in his films. There's so much of that, but so much more too, I think. Um, oddly enough, because <laughs> we were just thinking about um, <laughs> uh, The Lord of the Rings the other day, he's doing a film called Wendell Meets Middle Earth, which is kind of based around his Key and Peel character. Mm. So look out for that. I think he also did produce the new Candyman. There's a new yeah. Candyman that's out and he, he was producer on that, not director though. Mm. So a neo-Western horror movie, and I choose not to reveal the main plot theme, so nope for me on that. Uh, and as we heard, we got needle drops in this a lot. And now with the needle drops in this one, he's being, and if I say that too many times, I'm going to be thinking of it as a patent medicine. New needle drops. <laughs> which you probably use on uh, one of the droogs in Clockwork Orange, I imagine, to keep their eyes open or something. Anyway, um, so, but he's also got a pretty good conventional score, when I say that conventional for a Jordan Peele score as well, uh, Michael Abels as well, who collaborated with Get Out and, uh, and us as well. So what is this film about? Well, uh, there's a place called Haywood Ranch, mm-hmm. and there's a backstory to why it's called Haywood Ranch, and it's a... Uh, a movie legend, which I, I feel I shouldn't reveal here because it was fun to find out because I, I had no idea. Uh, and I'm not really sure how much of that is true. I feel like I'm a little bit in Tarantino land that's uh, in, in there. And essentially there's a uh, an African-American uh, family who own this ranch. And what they do is they're basically training horses for movies and TV and commercials. So they're, you know, they're stunt wranglers, essentially. And one day, while they're outside around the sand arena, you know, the place where they're training the horses and stuff, um, the father in the family, while he's riding on horseback, is killed in an absolutely bizarre accident, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the nature of which I shall not reveal to you at this stage. I think, and that much is in the trailer as well, so this isn't really a spoiler or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. And thereby hangs the tale. How was he killed? Why was he killed? What's going on here? We follow up on the progress of the ranch with his son and daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much the daughter. She's really had a belly full of the ranch and she's off doing other things. Okay. Lots and lots of other things. A lot of them are side hustles based around the film industry. So who are the players here? We've got Daniel Kaluuya playing Otis or OJ, which is to say Otis Jr. Mm-hmm. So he's the son who has inherited the ranch. And look, we've seen him in a lot of things from Sucker Punch to the Doctor Who Easter special, Planet of the Dead. Uh, he's been in Black Mirror mm-hmm. and also in 
uh, Sicario, if you've oh. seen that one. Yeah, yeah so yeah. a bit of Father Villeneuve there. And, of course, he played uh, Wakabi in the Black Panther movie back in 2018, uh, amongst a whole bunch of other roles. And, of course, he ha- he is another uh, um, alumni of uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and he has the most incredible way of wearing a hat that I've ever seen. <laughs> it's like it's it's almost like it's got a separate existence. <laughs> I don't know why he's wearing it if he's going to wear it like that, which sound makes me sound like a grumpy old man. But I don't care how he wears it. It's just it's just very it's just very peculiar and, and a signature way of, of wearing them. Uh, but aside from his hat, which also made me chuckle at uh, one stage for um, again reasons which I can't go into here. Uh, so he is a very sort of pragmatic and and considered horse wrangler. Mm-hmm. And you can see why he would do that sort of job. Mm. It, it brings a lot to the character. And you're thinking, yeah, I can see you doing this. This is obviously your profession. Yeah. And that will be important in the course of the film, of course. Mm. You know, you can't uh, show an object without using it or, or profess a skill without it. Yes, Chekhov's horse wrangler. <laughs> yes. Or uh, or what was it? Uh, car valets in uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend yeah. of the Ten Rings. <laughs> this skill will come in handy. Uh, on His sister uh, is um, Emerald, so she's known <laughs> as Emma Haywood, and uh, it's uh, Kiki Palmer. Yes. This particular character. I've not seen her too much. Do you know her from anything? Maybe? Yeah, we saw something with her very recently, I'd thought. But we didn't see her. Yes, we did not. We heard her. That's right. Yeah. She was, of course, Izzy Hawthorne in Lightyear, which we covered a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And she's got a lot coming up, and I think she is kind of someone who is popping up in a lot of really interesting roles and starting to get more juicy, juicy projects. Um she was in the Scream TV series and I think, yeah, she's been in a couple of little horror ditties, so it'll be interesting to see what else she's got coming up. She's done a lot of voice work as well. Hmm. Well, before you can say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the ranch is not doing particularly well and it's possible they might have to sell it. They're certainly having to sell off some of the livestock Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know so this does sound very much like they're going to sell it off to a cult but the nearest place to sell it to is jupiter's claim now this Mm -hmm. is a how will i describe this it's not a dude ranch it is a theme park a western sort of gold rush type you know oh yeah yeah yeah, gotcha. Uh, a little bit tacky, a little bit not, but it's actually owned by an a, a man who was a child actor back in the day, and he was known for all sorts of television shows and so on. Now he's grown up now, and he's play he's Ricky Jupe, as in Jupiter Park. Oh yes, Stephen yeah. Yoon. Yes, yes, we know from the unfortunate Glenn <laughs> from The Walking Dead, although unfortunate could apply to everyone. <laughs> everyone in that particular thing. Oh, he was in Okja as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I remember him for that too. Uh, and, you know, so he's playing this this guy who's trying to make a fist of it in with this theme park. Uh, there have been a successful a succession of unsuccessful theme parks in that mm. area as well. Yeah. And our hero, OJ, goes to sell some horses to him, 
which is, you know, it tears out at his heart. You can tell that he doesn't want to do that. Yeah. He's, he's really a, a professional and he loves the horses too. Mm. Now, this will figure into later events in the film, but something happens on the ranch mm-hmm. that causes them to want to upgrade their surveillance technology because they do have <laughs> they do have closed yeah. circuit TV on on the ranch. It's a big place and it helps them to keep tabs of it. But they need better. Suddenly, yes. Uh, so they 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 get um, Angel Torres, who's a, a tech salesman at one of the local sort of shops. I should I should uh, also tell you that this is set in um, Los Angeles, uh, uh, yes. uh, sort of area. <laughs> no, I'm not quite as close to that, but in that area. In fact, it's very near um, uh, Vasquez Rocks, which you'll okay. have seen so many times in uh, different Hollywood films mm, 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 and mm. also in this Star Trek episode, Arena, the classic <laughs> one, where Captain Kirk fights the Gorn. Mm-hmm, you know. mm-hmm. uh, so it's a, a very interesting sort of, Leaky kind of area, yeah. Obviously, really good for running horses because you know there's space, space yeah, and paddocks and hills and stuff. And the ranch is actually a little bit isolated. Okay, yep. from yep. all of that. Yeah, anyway, this is feeling so, very Manson family, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, th- there's so many ways that you could go with this. Yeah, and Peel teases them all. Okay, until oh, you get well, to would. the meat and potatoes of the story. Uh, another character who shows up in this is Antlers Holst who's a, a cinematographer played by Michael Wincott in this. He's been around for so long that he was Sir Guy of Gisborne in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Um, we've seen him in Alien Resurrection. I, look, he's got such massive credits that you could go on forever there, as does uh, so many of the other characters in this too. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's really very much um, the, the the film of those five characters. Yeah, yeah, in, the in core certain ways. Yeah, they're the, they're the core ones. Uh, all right, so once you get through all of that, the film the film kicks into high gear, and the other theme that I will talk about mm-hmm. the show that uh, Jupiter Jupe was in when he was a kid was called Gordy's Place. Okay. Now, this is a very short lived sitcom in the universe of this story, uh, which starred a chimpanzee. Oh gosh, that never ends well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this was like in the 90s, I think, uh, 98, I seem to recall. So what you have there is something that ends very, very badly indeed. It always does. Yep. And, and what the reason why it's an important subplot and sub-theme is because it frames a lot of the themes of this movie because it's Jordan Peele and he will not give you a movie without lots of subtext. There'll be some themes, there'll be subtext, there'll be some things to think about, I bet. Mm. Not not the least of which is why does it have to be a ranch that's run by African-Americans that gets uh, the subject of the story in this one? Why is it, you know, it's just like it's loading the dice. Yeah, sure. <laughs> You know, like the families in Us and the unfortunate people in Get Out. It's just, you know, he's making a point there and, and it's a fair enough point, even if it is, is unfair in its justifications and origins. Anyway, uh, moving on from that, the Gordy, Gordy's Place story is also important because it's about exploitation in Hollywood mm, yeah. and about spectacle. Yeah, and you know, and just as a not even as a sidebar, but when I was watching some, um, let's call it pomp porn, which is to say, 
ceremonial about the death of the queen. You know, they're doing all of these uh, uh, speeches and so tributes on. and tributes. Such. And but this was actually one where they're hand, handing the uh, the announcement of Charles being king and the queen having died, all that sort of stuff. Um, and it was a, a crowd outside of wherever it was. It might have been Buck Palace or it might have been the Exchange in London. And the crowd were all holding up their iPhones and their devices and and it was like. I'm looking at this and the big cameras are doing the big scene, but everybody else is that you're actually doing a, yeah. a, a scene. Then there's this middle section of people filming it. Yeah. And then you've got the big cameras at the back doing this and it's spectacle. Yes. Yeah. So this Gordy's placing is all about the spectacle. So, you know, I think that's very important in the film. Okay. And so that'll give you that. So you've got this whole Hollywood Western setup. You've got exploitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got how do people react to events happening? Well, they want to take pictures of it. In this case, this is where the cinematographer comes in. Yeah. They want to get the Oprah shot. Ah, okay. okay. The one that Oprah will show. Yeah, yeah. So they're all about that. Okay. So it's very beautifully put together in that and wonderfully filmed too in itself, which you would expect it to be. That's the thing. It's, it's such a, a film about filmmaking in, in a way, but an odd one because it's Jordan Peele. <laughs> Speaking of the o- Oprah shot, should we take that track from the soundtrack? We should. Um, let's take a listen to that. This is from Nope, the original motion picture soundtrack by Michael Abels. This is Neil Gaiman. It's well past 2000 AD, but Tharg still listens to Zero G. That was the Oprah shot, very ominous, by Michael Abels, and that is from the Nope soundtrack. That was a more conventional piece of soundtrack. Uh, The film score is full of needle drops too, in that classic way that Jordan Peele has of not just using the track or a segment of the track, but having them remixed to reflect the influence of the film's subject matter. Okay. Yeah, he's gone a bit beyond. He's always got a lot. There's always a lot happening in terms of everything's very well thought through and everything has a point. And I think, I mean, as someone who studied like film theory, I love digging into movies where you're like, oh, what does that mean? Oh, this is a little nod to this. And even little touches I remember in Get Out when she's eating just the cereal and the milk separately, there was, uh, I read some things where I was like, yeah, you know, she's very much about this segregation, even with her food. And I was like, whoa, I bet you that's on purpose. Like lots of clever stuff he's always doing. There are huge amounts of those in this, uh, so you won't be disappointed in, in being able to unpick the the narrative <laughs> mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. subtext in Nope. I thought it was a brilliant film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is not only a great neo-Western, it's also a pretty scary horror movie at times. Cool. Uh, a lot of it is filmed in low lighting conditions. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if they're using the old the old standby of day for night in some of the scenes. It's mm-hmm. quite possible. Possible. And it's I found it very creepy in places, mm-hmm. not so much in others when you come face-to-face with some of the ideas that you've been having yourself about where this film is going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the special effects are remarkable. Yeah, okay. And I totally bored into it. And there, it is an exploration of not only the tropes that I've mentioned before, but also one that I haven't mentioned, a refreshing take on that. And I thought really you'd been to every well that you could possibly do. And a well actually does play a significant part in this film. Okay. And, and yet here they are mining some new ore out of a, a fairly tired 
trope in the genres. Very intrigued. Oh, it's so much great fun. I will say that the horses have more sense than the human beings at times. Of course. Animals (laughs) do in these situations, I think. Fight or flight, they know what's up. Yeah, get the hell out of Dodge is what that (laughs) means, really, basically. Yeah, so, yeah, I look, I'll give this a nope, yep. Nice. It's basically nice. where it is. It's a definite film to watch. It's a good one on the big screen too. Mm-hmm, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. pleased to say that having seen it on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll go out with a, another needle drop. Yep. Now, this one is an example of what we were saying before where they've taken a track, Sunglasses at Night by mm-hmm. Corey Hart from 1984. Okay. And uh, it, where it came out as a signal. A single, I think, from his album First Offense. Mm-hmm. And so this one, you know, was a big chart sort of hit. And essentially, Sunglasses at Night is a reference to the fact that when they were doing the recording sessions for the album, uh, the studio had a lot of um, air conditioning and heating vents which were above the mixing console. Mm. So the air from those vents went straight into the faces of the mixers. Oh, so they wore sunglasses to protect their eyes. Ooh. let's just have this I wear my sunglasses at night song so yeah it it means a lot in context of the film and I'm going to tell you right now because you're all going to ring up and say Rob you're playing this at the wrong speed (laughs) it is played at the speed it was played at in the film and there is a reason for that Mm -hmm. and I just thought it sounded really good so you know, well, Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour will probably have to say, no, no, that track was played at the right <laughs> in Jordan Peele's film. Nope. So thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. Thank you to our podcaster, Alice Savage. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.